Okay, let's continue on with some more cases. Dr. Schnell? Yeah, sure, Neil. This is a 58-year-old Caucasian lady who was originally evaluated by me in September of 2004, but her actual oncologic history begins in 1988. She then developed invasive mammary carcinoma of the right breast, which at the time was multifocal and treated with a modified radical mastectomy, followed by the administration of CMF. Her tumor was lymph node negative, estradiol, and progesterone receptor positive in that time era, and there was no mention made of adjuvant hormonal therapy after the conclusion of CMF. Eleven years later, she developed a breast mass in the contralateral remaining breast and underwent then a wide local excision, which revealed an 8-millimeter grade 1 invasive ductal carcinoma with a small component of associated DCIS, then underwent a right axillary node dissection, revealing, uh, again, node-negative disease. Her new primary was ERPR positive and her to do negative by immunoperoxidase testing. She underwent radiotherapy, and no systemic therapy was given. She remained clinically well for five additional years, and in early 2004 developed rather explosive bone pain and was documented to have multifocal metastatic disease on a bone scan done in August. She had an extensive staging evaluation and actually underwent two or three medical oncology consultations at that time and settled on sticking with me. Did she get a biopsy in 2004? No. So, Kathy, this is kind of interesting historically because as we calculated what her age was in 1988, she was in her 40s, she was premenopausal, and we all remember the controversy in late 80s, early 90s about tamoxifen or hormone therapy in premenopausal patients. And Mike Baum in the UK was screaming and a lot of other people that it works in premenopausal women and other people weren't and a lot of people didn't get treated and she didn't get treated. I'm just kind of curious of your thoughts, Kathy, reflecting back on that whole controversy that was going on. Yeah, there was always such a limited amount of data in the adjuvant setting about adding tamoxifen after chemotherapy. And I think even to this day, there's a limited amount of data from randomized trials. And I guess in the broader context of looking at something like the overview, tamoxifen worked in every other patient. It worked in postmenopausal women. It worked in premenopausal women that hadn't had chemotherapy. And maybe we were too slow to adopt that. But I think by 1999, it would have been pretty standard. Well, first of all, I'm not sure she was still premenopausal by 99, if she's 58 in 2004. But anyway, I would have thought it would have been pretty standard to offer endocrine therapy to this patient the second time around with the second cancer. And I don't know why it wouldn't have been offered. Amon, this lady is an example of the late recurrence. I guess it depends on where you think the recurrence is from, the one in 88 or 99. But even if it was 99, it was five years later. I'm curious about your perspective on what's happened over the last two, three years of the whole perspective on the long-term history of ER-positive breast cancer. Well, I think the ER-positive patients, this is a classic case, that these patients tend to have longer disease-free interval and tend to relapse more frequently into non-visceral sites like soft tissue or osseous disease. And I think if she was biopsied, bone biopsy, she would show that she's hormone receptor positive disease. And at this point, I think intent would be palliative, but patients with endocrine responsive tumor treated sequentially with endocrine therapy and with bisphosphonate can have a very good productive life, sometime extending up to several decades. 
I have some patients who have survived maybe 10, 15, 20 years with metastatic disease extensively involving the bones. The other thing I thought was interesting about this is could some of this have been preventive somewhere along the way? And I'm curious, Joe, right now, do you think that a patient kind of presents, you know, relocates or whatever, you come see the patient and you hear a story that they've had an ER-positive tumor, it's never been treated, but maybe they're seven years out or whatever, or maybe they got some tamoxifen, but now it's five years later. What's your parameter used, delayed AIs? Before I get to that point, I think it's really imperative in this patient, well, it's now three years later, but this is someone who I definitely would have done a biopsy to try and figure out what's going on. In the bone? A bone biopsy, or even a bone marrow, because in patients who have multifocal osseous disease, you can often see bone marrow involvement. But I would really want to know what's going on with this patient and make sure we're not dealing with multiple myeloma or something else. And to address your question, I was just astounded when I saw the results of the MA17 data where looking at the group that had initially been randomized to placebo and then offered to go on open-label letrozole to see that even at a median now of 30 months after completing their adjuvant endocrine therapy with a fairly wide range, that there was a treatment effect that one can see now really eight years after their initial diagnosis. That was just astounding to me. So I do now routinely discuss the issue of initiating adjuvant endocrine therapy in a patient who's been off endocrine therapy for some time, depending upon the circumstance. Usually it would be in someone who was at higher risk for having a relapse. And on mine, we now have some new data on the table, the same question about delayed and AI. We've had data, as Joe mentioned, on letrozole. We've had some data on anastrozole. At the last San Antonio meeting in December, we saw some data from the NSABP on exemestane. Can you kind of summarize the bottom line of what they reported? I think the bottom line is that the patients who were hormone receptor positive who have been treated for various duration of endocrine therapy, usually tamoxifen from four to six years, they were randomized to either placebo or they were given one of the AIs. And from the data which is available, it showed that there is substantial and significant reduction in the risk of events in ER-positive patients in the form of improved disease-free survival. And the safety profile of these agents looked very favorable. And there is no question that delayed introduction of endocrine therapy in these patients, as in those protocols was designed, is a very effective way of reducing the risk of recurrence. But I am still not very sure that a patient who is de novo coming to see me eight years or nine years down the line, whether I would tell her that today you need to start on AI. Kathy, when I was sitting in the audience when Terry Mamounis was presenting that trial and he was going through how so many patients crossed over and got treated and they only had half the number of patients because the MA-17 data had come out, so they had to close the trial. And I was sure he was going to say, and you know, the trial's negative, and then boom, you see this huge effect. What were your thoughts on it? I think it's amazing that they already got so many patients into that trial that they were able to show that. But I think it's just a piece of the fact that it's a big effect from the AIs. And I think, like Joe, that the data on crossing over and getting it later was really surprising to us and very powerful. So I think starting an AI later in these folks is good. Why don't you bring us up to date? I picked these two cases to start with because there were patients who were in clinical trials in the community setting. I kind of want to talk a little bit about that, too. But why don't we finish up on the case? I want to make one comment. I can't recall to footnote it whether or not it would have been unusual for me to have not done a bone marrow 
or a bone biopsy, and I believe that may have been done. But in any event, she qualified for a clinical trial that we were doing collaboratively with Carlos Artiega at Vanderbilt. And the intent of this was to look at the combination of erlotinib and letrozole. And she was eligible for that and was promptly put on treatment in October. She sustained an almost immediate good clinical response, had stable to improving skeletal metastases over a period of time, her bone pain dissipated. She was treated throughout that period with bisphosphonates in the form of Zometa and met resist criteria for stable disease. Her response lasted until March of 2006. So that was, what, a year? Almost a year and a half. I think it was 19 months. How did she do in the letrozole tarceva in terms of side effects? She had no side effects demonstrable from the letrozole. She had odd skin toxicity from the allotment. Most of the skin toxicity was referable to her nares, actually. Found it very irritating, and we eventually had to dose modify that down to, I believe, a dose of around 100 milligrams per day. And at that level, the symptom went away, and she tolerated that for multiple months thereafter. Aman, what do we know about EGFR inhibitors in breast cancer? I think so far the results have not been very encouraging. Kathy? I agree. They've been a big disappointment for us. Joe, what do we know about EGFR in general in terms of staining and all in breast cancer? There seems to be an association or higher prevalence of EGFR expression, at least by immunohistochemistry, in tumors that are triple negative. And so there's been some interest in exploring those agents targeting that pathway in that specific subset. Have people looked at the few clinical trials where they've tried it? Have they tried to see whether it was more effective in triple negatives? There are some trials that are ongoing that we may hear about in the next six to nine months, but I don't think we have the information available. So what was the next step, Dr. Snell? She developed not only progressive disease, but explosively progressive disease. And at this point, it was no longer confined to the skeleton. She developed large-volume visceral metastases with involvement of the liver. She was offered second-line hormonal therapy, and I believe actually at one point that was started, and it was clear that the state of progression was not going to allow for this to be continued. And she was again offered enrollment in a trial that we had just activated, looking again at Abraxane, and in this case in combination with capecitabine. This was a study that was actually presented in abstract form at San Antonio. Kathy, can you talk a little bit more about that? So it was a small group of first-line patients treated with abraxane and capecitabine, and it was pretty tolerable, although I think they had, I forget the exact number of patients, but they had to do some dose reducing, but they had quite a bit of activity, some 50-some responses or stable disease, 57% or something like that. It was that very the, high. I don't recall the yeah, exact number. something either. like that. And I the guess study. there was a lot of interest in the XT, docetaxel, capecitabine regimen. And then there were a couple huh. trials. I think Bill Gratishar and Joanne Blum presented taxol and capecitabine. It looked like it was pretty effective, but not that much toxicity. I guess this trial was the same thing, looking at NAB. Yep. I am familiar with the toxicity data, which was actually the primary focus of the initial presentation. And the toxicity was really very negligible. The dose reductions were few in large measure related to the capecitabine portion of the Have you regimen. used paclitaxel and capecitabine in your patients? Yes. How have you found that to be? As was stated earlier in the discussion, I really think that abraxane is a better tolerated drug. And in the metastatic setting, I see no reason not to use it. So she got NAB and capecitabine? Correct. And how did she do? She remained on study with stable disease by resist criteria again, but clinically got dramatically better. She was having hepatic pain, declining performance status, skyrocketing enzymes. 
and tumor markers in the thousands. And all of this improved. She had less than a partial response, but a significant response on interim scanning and did very well on treatment. She completed 10 cycles of therapy and self-interrupted treatment for a variety of reasons in October. Any neuropathy? Not notably, no, sir. No toxicity, but the issue, again, in this particular individual was she really had highly symptomatic disease, and it never really allowed her to return to baseline and talked before about performance status. She's a teacher's aide, was very connected to her work, and during the entire period of early hormonal therapy was able to work without interruption. And she found it increasingly difficult to maintain work status and had to finally abandon that as she entered into the new school year in the fall of this past year. So was she able to work when she was on the NAB capecitabine? No. This occurred in the late spring. She went on break during the summer, and even though better by the fall school season, was really not able to handle work, much to her chagrin. I mean, that was very much something she wanted to do and was not clinically stable enough to return to. Amon, how often do you see these dramatic symptomatic responses and yet the objective parameters are stable? I think it depends how the disease presents because the lady initially had osseous metastases with first-line therapy. Those lesions become blastic. So the thing is that it becomes next to impossible to evaluate response in the bones. And if a patient develops hepatic metastases, which is fairly infiltrative without any nodular lesions, even though the patient might show significant regression of the disease, but by using any of the criteria which we assess the response, like even research criteria or the UICC criteria, it's next to impossible to put a ruler and say that this patient had a PR. Only thing you could say is that patient had improvement or stabilization of the disease. But did she have anything measurable? Yeah, she had measurable disease in her liver, but she did in not really resist criteria for a partial response. What about tumor markers? Though they were sky high, they got much better during the early phases of therapy. So the tumor markers the came down? The transaminases dropped dramatically, her tumor markers dramatically improved, her liver size diminished, the lesions shrunk, but not to partial response criteria. So, you know, it's interesting, Kathy, you look at research reports and you see this kind of stable disease, you go, oh, I wonder what this really means, maybe it really wasn't progressing that rapidly, but... This lady wouldn't have survived this spring without something being done. I really think you see some clear clinical responses like that that just don't meet. The criteria for partial response are pretty... Stiff. Yeah. You want to kind of bring us up to date, or is that it? No, the saga goes on. In fact, her daughter's being married today, so she's been keeping away from me for about a month. But she did make a decision around the first of the year. With the cessation of therapy in October, she again developed deterioration in performance status and progression in disease that was evolving even into early December. And again, along the lines of what we just discussed, she had a performance status at one, but sort of one creeping toward two, by the Christmas holidays. She still met criteria to go on yet a third trial and was offered enrollment, as was mentioned a couple minutes ago, on the Ribbon II trial for which she qualified. And that was a lengthy discussion I had with her about this. And the use of bevacizumab in the States, and I know we're going to continue to talk about that presumptively, but in our region, this actually is attainable in the metastatic setting under most of the health plans. That's not the case in other parts of the country, to the best of my knowledge. And in the discussion, she was quite frightened at this particular time, getting increasingly depressed, and she was not willing to enter into a third trial where there was going to be some question about what she was going to get up front. And in the end, was treated with gemcitabine and bevacizumab off study. So she wanted the bevacizumab? She did. That's understandable. 
And so is that what she's now She's into cycle two, has not had her disease reassessed, and we timed the beginning of that, as I said a moment ago, to coincide for a four-week break in anticipation of her daughter's marriage this morning. How is she doing so far in terms of the... Not as well. Again, her level of function and the level of symptoms was increasing in late December and is not notably abated, though I haven't had that much contact with her in the last 30 days. You know, we've talked about the reaction to the diagnosis before of incurable breast cancer, and I think sometimes people seem to fix on important events and hope that they can get there. How important was this oh, wedding to her? important. Her daughter accompanied her to probably 90% of the visits I've had. Her husband, though present, was not the kind of emotional pillar that her daughter has been, and I think, truthfully, her will to live is connected to that daughter getting married today. When did you first start hearing about the wedding? Oh, about three months ago. <laughs> hmm. It actually began entering into her mindset back in October when she stopped treatment. How does it feel to you today to know that that's where she is? Terrific. This is a real special individual who has fought a very difficult problem, a lot of emotional interface with this, and it's been a tough struggle. I'm glad she's there this morning. Dr. Reeves, you know, you can hear in Dr. Schnell's voice what he feels about this woman. How do you deal with bonding to people who are in such desperate situations? It really occurs over the length of the relationship. In the first interaction, you can find some individuals who are reaching out to you emotionally as well as looking for the medical guidance. And those people you have an important empathy with and you rely on faith, family and friends to give them the other support to go through all these difficult events in their lives. It's probably the most gratifying part of our profession to be able to establish relationships with patients and help them to reach important goals. And when you achieve that, it really makes your whole choice of going into medical oncology a very important one that you did the right thing. I see a lot of people nodding their heads in agreement. (laughs) The other thing is, Kathy, these two cases kind of talk about what you can accomplish in private practice in terms Mm -hmm. of clinical research participation. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think it's an opportunity for patients and for physicians to be part of clinical trials, and I think it's a way to keep your practice cutting edge, and so I think it's beneficial for the patient as well as producing, obviously, new information. It's great. Joe? just wanted to ask in this case, why did the patient stop therapy in October of 2006? Was it because of toxicity or no. progression? or She had some toxicity from the capecitabine, mm-hmm. and it was allowable under the right. context of the protocol for that to stop. So she continued on at Braxane up until that point, and at that point, it was hard for me to tell why she wanted to stop, but she was under a lot of stress and was uncomfortable with continuing and wasn't convinced subjectively that it was still holding the edge on her treatment. Was there an issue about that she didn't want to come to the office? No, no. It's, so this happens often. Patients uh, it does just poop out often. and they just want a break. And so my question actually is for Kathy and Amon. Unfortunately, in patients who have hormone receptor positive disease, in this circumstance, it's not uncommon for me, my practice, to put them on an endocrine agent, even if they progressed on a previous endocrine yeah. agent. Yeah. But there's not a lot of evidence supporting that. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts no, were. I, but let me fill in one. She did receive a dose of fulvestrin back when she first progressed in the liver and was within two weeks, was getting dramatically worse. So right, but I wasn't sure what I was going to go back to. Right? Yeah, I mean, I was having the same thought about the patient, and it may just have been not enough time with the fulvestrant, and also the question of loading these people up with fulvestrant to get them up to a level. And did I you mean, load her? I did not, but today I would. Yeah, I think we know a bit more about that now, but certainly it's often a good option when they've got a little bit more control after chemotherapy to pop the hormone in there and sometimes you can 
it sounds like this patient may or may not have the ability to respond to a hormone at this point, but it'd be certainly worth a try. I'd also like to ask, if I may, Kathy and Alman, about their experience using some of our old cronies like megestrel acetate, halitestin, and even estrogen in patients who've yeah. gone through the fulvostrant and AIs. Well, and there's also a drug called Danazol, which I don't... Do you have Danazol? It's what's called an impeded androgen, which don't ask me exactly what an impeded androgen is and why don't we have impeded estrogens, I don't know. But it's a drug that I still use sometimes. It's an androgen without a lot of the masculinizing side effects. And I still use Magistrel sometimes, a high-dose estrogen It makes people sick. I'm not fussy about it. I know some other clinicians are big fans of it. But there are other hormones that you can think about using as well. Amon, when was the last time you used halitestin? Oh, I still use it. I think the thing is that these endocrine agents, the patients who have endocrine-responsive disease, you can continue to keep them going if they still have endocrine-responsive disease. We should not forget that these older endocrine agents still work. We move them down the line because of their safety profile is not as favorable as the newer endocrine agents. So I think sequential utilization of endocrine agents is still an important way to palliate the disease for an extended period of time in selected patients. Unfortunately, what we heard about this patient does not look like that she has a hormonally dependent tumor because she is having a very rapid deterioration of her disease Mm -hmm. in a very short period of time. But if she had an indolent disease, I think utilization of progestins or androgens like fluoxymestron, which still is available, and using fulvostrant in appropriate doses or even steroidal aromatase inhibitor after non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors can palliate the disease for an extended period of time. Joe, if she does well on Gemzar Bev, but then starts having problems with the Gemzar, would you stop the Gemzar and keep the Bev going? Well, I'm afraid this is exactly the type of patient who probably won't benefit from bevacizumab. If you're going to use this drug, it needs to be used either as a component of your first-line therapy or soon thereafter. With regard to the endocrine therapy, one thing that's important with regard to megestrel acetate is to warn patients that when they stop it, that they can get vaginal bleeding. I can't tell you how many times that people... Phone call. (laughs) get the phone calls. People even go to the emergency room because of that. So they need to be warned that if they stop it either on their own or at your instructions, that that can be a problem. Amon, what about the issue, though, of the patient who's on chemo, Bev, and having problems with the chemo? Do you continue the Bev? If the patient has shown biological antitumor activity and was showing clinical benefit, then I think, yes, I would continue the one component of therapy to see that whether that will keep the disease under control or not. Dr. Green. Just one question. With the reintroduction of the aromatase inhibitors later after years of no treatment, what are we doing with that in reality? Are we just treating micrometastatic disease and delaying relapse, or do we actually think that we are increasing the curability of those patients? I don't know about the curability of endocrine-dependent breast cancer. Sometimes I wonder if any of them are curable or if we're just delaying them. On the other hand, if we delay them long enough, that's great. We delay them long enough to die something else, they're cured. Absolutely. And I think we're hitting micrometastases that are somewhere. Of late, I seem to have a lot of patients asking me where those things are. (laughs) You know, it's like one of the mysteries of life. I just don't know. But I think that's what we're doing. I think they've got disease there somewhere. And we're obviously affecting it by giving it late. So in theory, they should stay indefinitely on them? Well, 
I think there's going to be some studies at least to give us some information about that. I don't think we know right now. Well, as long as you brought it up, we might as well just find out right now what the three of you are doing in terms of, you know, this is one of the most common questions everybody around the table wants to know, which is, Aman, what do you do with somebody who hits five years on an AI and they're doing fine, no problems with the AI? At the present time, there is no data to suggest continuing beyond five years. But NSABP is doing a study that after five years of completion of AI, that patients will be randomized to continue or to stop the therapy at that point. And I think that will answer that kind of question. And there are a couple of other studies which are being planned. But current standard is that we don't have any data. And personally, our policy has been to stop the AIs after five years of AI therapy. Multiple positive nodes? I think this is same story as we were stuck in the era of tamoxifen after five years. Our policy is yes for all, both no positive, no negative patients. Kathy? Similarly, we're trying to put patients in studies. There's a re-randomization of MA17 that will take in patients who've had at least five years of NAI and the B42 study, which will take in patients that have had combinations of tamoxifen and NAI or an AI up to five years. So that's where I'm putting as many patients as I can because I do not know the answer to this question. Joe? At five years for the node negative patients, I generally recommend they stop. And for the node positive patients, I'll discuss the pros and cons. And about a third of them to a half of them will continue, particularly if they've made it out to five years on an AI, it means they've generally tolerated it well. And I'll say, well, we'll discuss it again in about two and a half to three years when I may have more data. Aman, we've been really sensitive to the issue of arthralgias in people with AIs. But overall, what fraction of people make it out to five years without any problem with arthralgias? Do you have any idea? Actually, in the ATAC trial where we have the double-blind randomized trial, from the safety point of view, from the arthralgias point of view, that it was like 29% of the patients on the tamoxifen arm experienced arthralgia, myalgias, or joint problems, and about 35% of the patients who were on the anestrozole arm. And if you look at what fraction of patients discontinued the therapy because of the side effects, it was about 1% of the patients on the aromatase inhibitor discontinued therapy. So 99% of the patients, if you reassure and treat them symptomatically, they will continue to stay on therapy. The thing is that patients have to be reassured. The major concern in the patient's mind is that if they have a pain or ache and they have a diagnosis of cancer, the first thing comes to their mind is, oh, my cancer has come back. So I think if you tell them that, yes, this is not a recurrence of cancer, this is the side effect of the drug, and as you look at the natural history that how these side effects evolve, after 12 to 18 months, that in a lot of these patients, the symptoms become much more tolerable or the patients do not complain of these symptoms and they will complete five years of therapy. Kathy, there's a little bit of a disconnect in terms of what people in practice using these agents say and the data that Aman just quoted. If you ask docs in practice, and we've done this, to estimate what fraction of your patients on AIs have significant problems with arthralgias, they'll say anywhere from 10 or 20 percent. Anybody think it's higher than that? But I see a lot of people nodding their heads that it's not 1%. And the dropout rate is a lot more than 1%. If you're on a clinical trial, I and mean, we were in ATAC too, and the dropout rate is very low, but it's different off of a trial. We do a lot of aromatase switching in practice too. Somebody will not like 
Aromadex, we try them on from our aromas and we switch things around. But do you buy so into some of that psychological, I think. You give them a different drug and tell them maybe you'll feel better on this other drug. I'm not sure that's all physiologic what we're doing when we're switching those. And, you know, I mean, this is subject to bias and in your interpretation, but do you buy into the 10 or 20% figure? Or you think it's lower or higher in terms of people who have significant problems on AI? I think it's 10 or 20%. I certainly think so. I think it's 20, and I might go higher. I mean, I think if you really ask them and you really get good answers back, it's significant. Kathy? I think the difference in those numbers is that if you look at a trial like ATAC or most of the other trials, the reports of aches and pains in both arms are quite high. They're, I don't know, 30% or more. The difference is about 5 or 6%. So when you think of the population, you know, they're 50 to whatever year olds, and how many of us wake up in the morning with aches and pains? <laughs> I well, do. That's interesting. <laughs> I'm not taking an AI. <laughs> Has anybody looked at age and the incidence of arthralgias with AIs? Online? Yes, we looked at it in the ATAC. Actually, it was surprising that patients who were younger, they had more arthritis type of symptoms when they were on the AI arm. And also it was somewhat more pronounced in patients who had just finished chemotherapy because all of us are familiar that once you stop the chemotherapy and if these patients were then started on AI, there was somewhat higher number of patients who complained of joint symptoms. But the key thing from the patient point of view is that if we tell the patient that this is therapy-related, not a disease coming back, and manage it symptomatically, majority of patients will comply with therapy. 